1: Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I am your host, Rachel Brodsky.
2: And I'm Aviv Rubenstein.
1: The Verbs' 1997 hit, Bittersweet Symphony, is famous for many things. A remarkable string sample from a 1965 version of the Rolling Stones song, The Last Time, which the Rolling Stones took from the Andrew Oldham Orchestra and an ensuing legal battle over the rights to the sample with the Stones' former manager, Alan Klein, gets very sticky. And a truly kick-ass music video featuring lead singer Richard Ashcroft walking down a busy street in London.
2: Bittersweet Symphony is also well-loved for its use in the 1999 teen romantic drama comedy satire Cruel Intentions, which needle drops the song as the movie's villain, Sarah Michelle Gellar, gets her comeuppance. And the ostensible hero, played by Reese Witherspoon, is driving away in a very important car.
1: How did this iconic track come to close out Cruel Intentions? How did Cruel Intentions stand out in a sea of 90s teen movies? And what is its legacy more than two decades later?
2: All this and more on a bittersweet episode of NSYNC.
1: Aviv, before we get into The Verve and the song Bittersweet Symphony, I just want to... Before, I just want to ask you how old you were when you first saw Cruel Intentions and what that movie and or its soundtrack meant to you as a teen.
2: I'm glad that... Thank you for asking. You're welcome. So, shout out to a girl that I dated briefly in 10th grade named Ann Fricker. And I distinctly remember watching Cruel Intentions in Ann Fricker's basement in like ninth or tenth grade and hearing obviously that opening placebo song for the first time but this corresponded to like very early like CD burning, making mix CDs, Napster, all this stuff that like allowed kind of perfectly coincided with like a 14 year old Aviv like really getting deeply into music for the first time and so i remember that vivid memory of watching the movie in ann fricker's basement but also that the kiss the sarah michelle geller uh selma blair kiss was just just everywhere at that time and and was like uh a cultural you know like like the moon landing for us (laughs) millennials so those are my distinct, very, memories.
1: very wet kiss.
2: Yes. Well, oh God! All of my research on this kiss is just like, oh, and we got so lucky about that spit. The spit <laughs> was such a happy accent. I was like, this is disgusting. Oh my God! What about you? What is your? We both fit like directly in the sweet spot of Cruel Intentions being such a like a a relevant cultural touchstone for us.
1: Yeah. Uh So I was about twelve, and while. My parents were very liberal about letting me rent like any rated R movie I wanted like they did not police that. I was not allowed to see a rated R movie in the theater, but as soon as Cruel Intentions came out on video, DVD, I don't remember,
2: VHS.
1: Probably VHS. Um I must have rented it by myself, <laughs> which sounds like lurid. It does. So, so it, it wasn't I I just like I've been surrounded by like PG13 teen movies for years and I was shall we say titillated that all my favorite like teen stars like Sarah Michelle Geller and and some Hayek that's not, not Salma Hayek oh. You know, Selma Blair. Selma Blair, excuse me, yeah, different Selmas. Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Phillippe, who I had an enormous crush on, were in a movie that was like rated R and was said to be very racy. So I was like, oh my god, I have to watch this. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that I watched it alone and was just like jaw on the floor the whole time because while a lot of PG13 movies, like teen movies of the time had like hints like they talked about sex and they had like hints and like sexual innuendo you ever really saw. This
2: was pretty explicit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so I was just like, Oh my God. And, um, so let's, let's say that I was again, titillated, uh, by the movie and it was like, like a Judy Bloom novel for me. (laughs) Basically. Sure.
2: Like, it's a, it's a, I felt it's a, like I
1: was learning uh, Eye-opening.
2: <laughs> yeah. And a little yeah. later in the show, we're going to talk about the making of the movie and how exactly it got away with being so sexually explicit and still being a movie marketed toward teenagers. But first, let's talk a little bit about Bittersweet Symphony.
1: Awesome. Now, I'm really glad that we're talking about Bittersweet Symphony and The Verve because I have always thought of The Verve as being way too underrated, at least in the U.S., around what they contributed to the 90s Britpop movement. When people think about Britpop, they tend to think of, oh, like Oasis, Pulp, uh, uh, Blur, Blur yeah. yeah. And The Verve, I think, is better recognized in the U.K. where they're from, but personally, I think that uh, The Verve and the song that Bittersweet Symphony comes... For the album that Bittersweet Symphony is on, Urban Hymns, is like one of the best albums of my lifetime. <laughs> um, so The Verve formed in 1990 with lead singer Richard Ashcroft, guitarist Nick McCabe, bassist Simon Jones and drummer Peter Salisbury. They do have one other member, Simon Tong, who joined the band to replace Nick McCabe, who then came back. And Tong was then the fifth member of the band. So Urban Hymns is the only album that the band recorded as a five piece. Urban Hymns, which has Bittersweet Symphony on it, is it, is the Verve's third album. It comes out in fall of 97. Urban Hymns becomes the Verve's best selling release. It's one of the biggest selling albums that year. Um, in 2019, that album was ranked as the 19th best-selling album in UK chart history, Incredible. And, it, and it has sold over 10 million copies worldwide. This is one of my favorite albums of all time. Like, I can't say enough good things about it.
2: I can definitely say that I have never listened to this album.
1: You should listen to it. It's epic. It's an epic album. It's 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 very, let's say, over-the-top in certain ways, and it's like Gen X ennui. Sure. It's, ve- it's very, like, it's very sig- Semi-sonic, if you will. Yeah, it's maybe a little self-serious, but the I think it's earned, and the orchestrations are some of the most beautiful I've I think I've ever heard. We'll get into that a little bit more. Bittersweet Symphony. It does tend to be regarded I think in the U.S. as a one-hit wonder, but that would not technically be true. So Urban Hymns has uh, a few other singles on it. Uh, a song called Lucky Man, which peaked at number seven in the UK. The Drugs Don't Work, which is not my favorite song on the album, but it it is their o- the Verve's only number 1 single from that record, which is pretty funny. Um, I
2: remember that song too. Yeah. Those are the two Verve songs that I'm that it's I'm It's pretty
1: of. I personally find it a little clunky. Uh I prefer the more ornate songs like um lucky man that's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. songs there's a song on the album called weeping willow and the rolling and then the rolling people i i prefer those but still a good song uh and then sonnet was the final uh single from urban hymns which apparently was used recently in an episode of ted lasso which was pretty cool anyway like i said i Definitely recommend checking out some of the other uh, songs on this album, like Weeping Willow's beautiful song, Catching the Butterfly. Like these, like you can really picture the Verve, like Ashcroft in particular, just in this like transcendental state, (laughs) like writing these really like highly philosophical songs that you want to roll your eyes at, especially what like almost 30 years later. But Again, the orchestrations and the way he sings, um, I personally find it like a little like more poetic or and beautiful, and just just as worthy in the pantheon as like sh- what's the story, Morning Glory. I'm
2: also not a big Oasis person, so the, I'm you. You don't have to sell me on the <laughs> Verbs quality over Oasis. Also also lending to some of the confusion the verve shares or not doesn't share the verve has a similar name to a another 90s like alt-rock american band called the verve pipe who you would recognize from their song the freshman which i knowingly but mistakenly messed up in an email earlier today and i knew what song we were doing today and i still was like oh yeah we're doing the freshman so it it happened to they had to happen to be hits kind of around the same time and i think that that also contributed to the verve's lack of staying power is like would just happen to be like a confusing time for verve and verve pipe Interesting, bands.
1: interesting. So the Verve actually split. Well, I think they had a couple of reunions, but they played their last show in, I want to say 2008, definitely near the end of the aughts. But that's an interesting theory. And yeah, that's easy to conflate the two band names. Um, I've seen it happen numerous times. So don't Constantly. don't feel weird or bad uh, about <laughs> oh, it. Oh, I do. Uh, but the, f- <laughs> yeah. the
2: Freshman, the Verve pipe song came out the year before the verbs bittersweet symphony so clearly yeah. we were all just confused constantly
1: i have a very specific memory tied to the video of I, uh, um, bittersweet symphony if oh, i can yeah. if i can throw that in real yeah, I, I was um on a camp trip uh so i went to day camp that that summer and they took us i think i was in sixth grade maybe like rising sixth or rising seventh i don't remember ex- entirely but it took us that summer to um the hard rock cafe in manhattan and um they and and the cafe was just playing like they had a giant screen playing music videos of the moment and one of those videos was um bittersweet symphony and i just remember like eating like cold steak cut french fries perfect (laughs) and watching the video and just thinking I think I wish I'd rather be in the video like I'd rather just be walking down the street in a city right now than sitting here where I I feel a little bit bored like I was always I always just wished I was off like reading or watching TV or like disassociating somehow instead of being around people and in that moment I just was like I'd like to go into the video
2: (laughs) just be just be there so (laughs) Um, why don't we take a a watch of the bittersweet symphony video (laughs) So I can't say that this was the first video that did the like singer in a leather jacket walking down the street in a city thing, but they definitely, there was definitely like a, a run on videos just like this for the next 10 years.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I covet that jacket. (laughs) I forgot how he knocks a a woman over. Oh, I'm downstairs. Down to He's just so lost in his ennui
2: I know Honestly Gen- it, it's the woman's fault man.
1: really For getting in the way
2: For how deeply I dove into placebo Because of this movie it's like an incredible that I just didn't go for any other band. I was just like, "Well, I figure I got the first one, so I'm happy with that one, and I don't have to do any further investigation."
1: Well, before we kind of dive into the song itself, which is kind of a uh, art versus corporate. Oh man art like music versus society before we dive into the themes i do want to say that this song bittersweet symphony is like it tends to when we, when we talk about it the conversation tends to be taken over by the legal battle and the rights conflict surrounding bittersweet symphony um for those who don't know
2: which was me uh, up until the recording of this show
1: as I mentioned at the top of the show, Bittersweet Symphony is based on a sample from a 1965 version of the Rolling Stones song, The Last Time, by uh, the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. And the Verve added strings, guitar, percussion, and vocals. They did obtain rights to use the last time sample from Deco Records, who held the copyright, But they were ultimately denied permission from the previous former Rolling Stones manager, Alan Klein, who owned the copyright of
2: the original song.
1: Correct. Klein argued that the Verve had in fact used more of the last time than had been previously agreed upon. And this, like, divide, uh, it just exploded the Verve's right to make anything off of this song, ultimately. The Verve were forced to relinquish all royalties. Um, The Stones' Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were added to the songwriting credits. And uh, to add insult to injury, Oldham separately sued the Verve in 1999 for over a million dollars for songwriter royalties. And uh, as a result of those two suits against the Verve, all royalty payments on Bittersweet Symphony ultimately went to Oldham, Jagger, and Richards for years. The good news, however, is that in 2019, Ashcroft got the royalties and songwriting credits back, which Billboard estimated had generated almost $5 million in publishing re- revenue. Ashcroft was, well... Previous to him getting the royalties and songwriting credits, credits back, he, he was not shy about expressing his frustration over the situation. Imagine that you have this, like, years have gone by, your band has broken up, this is now 2019, your biggest song, like, you you have to give over all the money to a band, essentially like a giant corporation, and the Stones are m- much more than just a band, who have millions to their name already you would th- this is my opinion now yeah. you would think that maybe they could just the stones could just like let the verb just have this one
2: <laughs> i agree i mean we talked about this with like be a be a mensch last week but like be a
1: mensch yeah
2: yeah i mean i think from a legal standpoint you know if you listen to the andrew oldham orchestra version of this It's basically just the song, right? He took, he took that version as like a backing track, added the, the string section, wrote new lyrics and a new melody. It's an interpolation. We see this all the time. This, you know, famously happened with Olivia Rodrigo and her good for you and this, and the band Paramore. That said, should, should the stones and, uh, and Andrew Oldham get, I'm saying that right? Oldham, yeah. Uh, get all of the royalties probably not i mean like let's be real here um but uh yeah that's that's pretty rough especially consider especially because the verve is considered a one-hit wonder this being their hit that it's like so sad that it comes with an asterisk
1: yes in 2018 ashcroft in an interview said uh Someone stole God knows how many million dollars off me in 1997, and they still got it. Anyone, unless you're mentally ill, will always remember the day when $50 million was stolen off them. Jeez. Well,
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, the grousing doesn't make you look great. But- it
1: doesn't, <laughs> but it is it is understandable, considering... Because um, you're not just going up against a band, like I said earlier. You're going yeah. up against... This, this behemoth.
2: The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. Capital R, capital in, S.
1: In the 90s, at that point, they have well, yeah, what? To, 30 to, years behind them.
2: To me, that that is the one that feels like sh- extra shitty, right? Like, pay the band that paid the Stones. Maybe kick the Stones a little extra something. But it's weird that it's the their manager who is like... Sensed blood in the water and was like, we could take this band for everything that they're worth.
1: Yeah, uh, so it's kind of a shame, but but the good news is that Ashcroft does have the rights back. Uh, All's well that ends well, mostly, but not not without a lot of pain and trauma. Yeah. <laughs> As for chart figures, Bittersweet Symphony. Hit number two on the UK singles chart where it stayed for three months. It was released in the US in March 1998 and uh, it hit number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. It's It's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. It was also named Rolling Stone and NME's Single of the Year. It was nominated for Best British Single at the uh, 98 Brits and in uh, 99 it was nominated for the uh, Grammy for best rock song. It is also, it's considered one of the defining songs of Brit pop. And it has been named one of the greatest songs of the decade by, uh, Rolling Stone. And I want to say enemy as well.
2: Yeah. It feels like a, the bridge between Oasis and what would eventually become like cold play.
1: That's a really interesting observation. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, um, I, I kind of thought of early cold play as being more like oasis and radio-heady, mm-hmm. but, but, but definitely you, you could throw, especially the like the video for yellow walking walking on the beach exactly
2: right yeah yeah and i remember seeing the video for yellow when it came out in 2000 like 99 or whatever and being like this no one will ever listen to this band this band sucks and you know shows how much i know
1: (laughs) yeah um i actually did like yellow but i like the scientist much more by that point Coldplay had my attention. Yeah, I don't
2: uh, I don't even dislike Coldplay, <laughs> but I remember looking at it and being like rock and roll will live forever. No <laughs> one will listen to Coldplay.
1: Not I'm to get be... too off track, but I think I liked Coldplay because I also liked the band Travis. Mm. Yeah. Um who did not experience anywhere near the pop, the popularity is <laughs> um Coldplay, but it's like similar similar light rock. Yeah. Uh I want to read a quote That uh, The Ringer's Rob Harvilla said in his podcast episode that was dedicated to Bittersweet Symphony, um, 60 songs that explain the 90s. Uh, Rob said the fact that Richard Ashcroft looped four bars of a cheesy orchestral cover of a Rolling Stones semi-cover of a definitive Staple Singer's version of a gospel standard and then dumped 500 tons of transcendent ennui on top of that sample along with his band and lost all the credit and all the money because of that original four-bar sample. This fiasco is an essential component of Bittersweet Symphony. The song is about what happened to the guy who wrote the song after he wrote the song. The song is about the guy losing the song even as he's singing it. Richard Ashcroft's big line at the time about this whole tragic legal fracas was that Bittersweet Symphony was the best song Jagger and Richards have written in 20 years.
2: And this feels very much very 90s in its like cash grab, litigious, everyone is you know the the yuppies have come home to roost sort of thing
1: yeah it's not very peace and love
2: no certainly not
1: uh so let's take a minute and talk about how bittersweet symphony made it into cruel intentions because it's it's actually really interesting the rolling stone saga made its way into the cruel intentions placement as well uh so as Bittersweet Symphony closes out Cruel Intentions, playing as, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character Annette drives away from New York City in that car we were talking about earlier, there was a minute where the song actually didn't, it almost didn't happen. That song placement, it was almost way too expensive to, to sync because of the Rolling Stones involvement. Uh, because the Rolling Stones had they they owned Bittersweet Symphony, essentially. The track cost ten percent of the movie's overall budget to secure. Jesus Christ. And Which is uh, over
2: that's a a million dollars for just this one song.
1: A million dollars just to have Bittersweet Symphony close out Cruel Intentions. But Cruel Intentions director Roger Cumble, he talked about this in a 2019 oral history of the movie, telling Entertainment Weekly I wrote the ending to that song because it just aligned perfectly. But at the time, he didn't realize that this was going to cost that much. He had no clue. Uh, and then we found out it's the Rolling Stones. Uh, so eventually, the production team, they did pony up the money. The song cost close to a million dollars. And producer Neil Moritz added, When we thought it was going to be hopeless to get it, we tried 200 other songs in its place, and we couldn't find anything even close to it. So it was well worth it and I agree it was worth it.
2: I I agree with that too. So so I mean it's interesting there's like there's like a bunch of failures that had to have happened to get to this place, right? So Roger Crumble it's Cumble not Crumble. I yeah, I almost crumble. said Crumble too. Roger Cumble writes this music into the script which you're not supposed to do for this very reason, right? You tell, you know, first time screenwriters to not write specific songs into the script because if you don't get them you are fucked and but he's like okay it's gonna be fine because it's this you know brinky dink band we could probably (laughs) clear the song for five grand and then another failure happens which is like oh no that's actually the rolling stones as you might imagine, if you're listening to this show, you know that like more popular bands demand a higher price tag for their music. Um, especially bands like the Rolling Stones who think that they're, or at the time, at least thought they were kind of above placing their songs in movies or TV. And so they just put the screws to the, to the production, which, you know, a million dollars for a song is really, really high. And. The movie is relatively low budget. It's a ten million dollar movie, so like a full ten percent of your budget going to one song is objectively a stupid idea. Like the, the 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 producer should be like, absolutely, the fuck not. We have so many better ways to spend that money, and yet they tried two hundred other songs. It was a massive failure, and they had to pony up the dough. And mm-hmm. that song, that placement. Un, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, Cumble was right, and that placement helped make the movie what it became.
1: Yeah, it's it was a huge risk, but it, it absolutely paid off. And I want to briefly talk about why this sync works so well. Um, the song is it's written in from kind of a jaded perspective of somebody who's not sure where art and music, and the more genuine things that you get out of life, how that like squares with everyday society and the myriad ways that you're kind of forced to behave around different people. Like there's the line, I'm a million different people from one day to the next. And so it's a very like music versus society and then it's about like who
2: am i man who am yeah I?
1: it's uh it, it's a very kind of existential but then it has like moments of oh like let the music shine let it cleanse my mind or i hear the music l- until the melody shines and it cleanses my mind i'm misquoting but i think you get the idea that the, the song has moments of clarity like the the author here is
2: it's not even who am i it's i can change over and over again i can change i can change i can, I can change. break
1: out of this yeah. um it's all <laughs> it's it's got kind of a it i just thought of fight club like the like the <laughs> the uh premise of fight club just popped in my head like
2: that should be it we should do that as an episode yeah,
1: um instead, where, for instead where of instead of forming um like a like a fucked up male rights like after school group where everyone hits each other like what's (laughs) wrong with that ashcroft is just like finding moments of transcendence in these little meaningful moments like these these little meaningful times like here's a song on the radio and just for a minute everything is okay and i want to say that this worked really well but just because the end of cruel intentions
2: spoilers for cruel intentions you've had 25 years to watch it
1: it's a uh, literally a bittersweet ending. Um, and if you haven't seen the movie, let me just quickly set up the, the plot. It's kind of a proto gossip girl plot setup where, uh, it takes place on Manhattan's Upper East Side, where a group of seniors in high school who are, ne- we never actually see them in high school until the very end, but it's about a group of, uh, jaded teenagers essentially like manipulating each other. For what? Entertainment, social status, uh, titillation. And except for one character who is played by Reese Witherspoon, Annette, who has, is joining the school like in the last year of high school. And she is, um, she is a a virgin and has written about like she doesn't engage in that kind of lifestyle. And she has, she's written about it in 17 magazine, which sets up. A bet, as all 90s movies must, 90s teen movies, that is. A bet is set up uh, between lead like, uh, anti-hero protagonist Sebastian, played by Ryan Phillippe, and his step-sibling Catherine, played by Sarah Michelle Geller, And Catherine bets him that he can't uh, get the net to lose her virginity. And if he loses the bet, then Catherine gets his roadster. Jaguar? Is it a jaguar? Yeah. yeah. So it's like a 1950s, like a, like a really sweet vehicle.
2: And, and so clearly by the end of the movie, Ryan Phillippe's character, Sebastian, falls in real, true love with Annette. And, uh, should we spoil it for real? Should we tell them the end of Yeah, I of think it?
1: everyone. All right. If, if you don't want to know what happens, then just skip, skip ahead.
2: And then, and then is, is hit by a car. He just, he just fucking dies.
1: After, well, after finding true love and character redemption, Sebastian dies and he's hit by a car, but he, but he saves, he gets hit by the car because he's saving Annette, the woman that he spent so much of the movie manipulating into losing her virginity, but ultimately falls in love with. So Sebastian has been redeemed, even though he dies. (laughs) And, uh, Catherine gets her comeuppance. The movie wants us to see that she is jaded beyond redemption. And, and she's ulti- a woman
2: who likes sex, so she has to be punished.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a fantastic monologue by Oh, Catherine we're going to and- read
2: a, a portion of Are it. We? In- okay. Well, yeah. I won't,
1: I won't, I won't talk about it just yet then, but you're right though. Yeah. Because Catherine en- enjoys sex, she must be punished. Uh, but the movie shows that she- ultimately, she's kind of to blame for his death. And, uh, As she receives her comeuppance, the opening chords of bittersweet symphony begin to sound, and the lyrics outline the central conflict of art and meaning, contrasting with society's structure and how easy it is to just sleep through, sleepwalk through life until the melody, melody shines and it cleanses your mind. Um. So the words also, if you're you're a slave to money, then you die. Uh, resonated with me thinking about this movie, considering the setting and how, um, the Upper East Side is historically like steeped in generational wealth and people who manipulate others for social gain and status. And that's kind of like what most of the characters in the film that's just the ecosystem they're operating in.
2: And you might be asking yourself, couldn't they have found a different, perhaps cheaper song? to illustrate that point and the answer might kind of be no because the song so perfectly melded a stone song which was rewritten as this instrumental which was then adapted and turned into this almost uh looping quasi electro dj sort of thing. like it it becomes the culmination of the 60s optimism and the 90s jaded stuff that we were just beginning to fully understand and so I think like unfortunately for the budget of the film like there was no better song to capture such a thing
1: yeah and I think you also need an orchestral song you need something with strings yeah to drive home the moneyed atmosphere if you will, I, I scale this is something that just occurred to me. But I think that you have a kind of old money setting with really young teenage character. So it's also a pop song. Mm-hmm. And I like the way those two. Um, I don't know that there would be a better option, but also we we have no other. Uh, we really have only this perspective.
2: That's true. When Rachel and I were approaching this episode, we knew we wanted to do something about cruel intentions. Usually we pick the property before we pick the exact sync. And our first thought was actually to go with the Counting Crows song Colorblind. Unfortunately, or or maybe fortunately, I fucking hate the Counting Crows.
1: <laughs> um, no comment because I, I have interviewed Adam Durwitz about that about Colorblind and like writing it for Cruel Intentions and I think like talking about Colorblind in relation to Cruel Intentions is a little bit overdone.
2: It, it be, And specifically because Colorblind was written for Cruel Intentions because they couldn't get the song that they actually wanted. So Richard Cumble if it weren't for Smashing Pumpkins Billy Corgan we would have a Counting Crows free film. This is from Cosmo. Uh, okay. The Uh Richard Cumble Films director said I wrote a lot of the movie to music it's like that first time filmmaker thing this would be perfect for this for that scene and for the scene where uh sebastian and annette finally consummate their relationship there was this smashing pumpkin song called to sheila which fit perfectly and if you turn off the counting crows and play the scene to sheila it actually works quite nicely this is this is uh cosmo saying that's not me okay and it- <laughs> and it seemed like from, from Cumble, and it seemed like we were going to get the song. It was great. Billy Corgan was watching the movie. It was down to the wire. And then they give me the call, quote, Smashing Pumpkin said no. And we're like, oh fuck, because we were all in agreement then that the producers and the studio and I, Richard said, this is the right song. So. We had a, they had a similar issue with Bittersweet Symphony where they thought that they weren't going to get the song. In this case, they definitely weren't going to get the song.
1: I, that does feel like a a rather Billy Corgan thing to do. It certainly this does. Kind of like sweeps in at the last minute, like to um, just take the piss. No, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just going to make this harder for you. I, I have, <laughs> I have no, being the anti-Minch. I, I have no, um this is just purely ba- like my theorizing, but it, it, fits. There it, is. it there fits It fits with
2: the general under my general understanding of Billy Corgan. So this is Cumble. Then everyone had their favorites and we couldn't agree. So we were trying every song in that scene, which we all knew was pivotal. And I remember I was championing a Neil Finn song, which I'm, I'm guessing was have a little faith in me or, or something. Um,
1: I, c- I have no idea.
2: I really like Neil Finn. Um, But they weren't as jazzed about it as I were, and we were at a standstill. And then the music supervisor said, came in and said, Adam Duritz saw the movie and loved it, and he wrote this song, and they're recording it tonight or tomorrow night, but here's a demo of it. And we heard the opening, that piano, and we were like, oh my god, this is great. We love this. And Neil and I went to Adam's house, or the Crow's house they were renting at the time, that night or the next night, and watched them record Colorblind. And we put it in the film, and it was great. Asterisk, that was Richard Uh, Cumble. I mean,
1: it worked at the time, I guess. Uh, Now I just, like, because I have obviously rewatched Cruel Intentions numerous times as an adult. And now I just kind of get the ick. It's very schmaltzy. I
2: think so too, and I think that of the of the entire soundtrack, this sticks out like a sore thumb.
1: Yeah it it doesn't quite have the same cool factor, if you will, like that bands like Placebo certainly and and been, been. um the Verve do uh all from these are all like 90s musicians, but they're very different rock uh interpretations. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think, scenes. I think truly it's just the cool factor, right? The whole yeah. the whole uh uh soundtrack has blur, Marcy Playground, Amy Man, Fat Boy Slim, and this other kind of this other kind of band that, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um no, I, I don't wanna I, I don't want to shit on, on Counting <laughs> Crows too much, but uh
1: just have, the right uh, amount. I have to like, okay, this this might be like a TMI, not on my end, but an observation I this. that I had I'm while re so watching most recently. Um okay, so you know that we know the sex scene. It's it's burned into our, our brains between. Speak
3: for yourself.
1: That <laughs> I know I know the sex scene, and uh, like it, it has like an added layer of poignancy because I think um, Ryan Philippi and um, Reese Witherspoon already they were they were, they were already they were get- long yeah. together yeah. by yeah. that point, and they they already had their first child together by that point, and the so the sex scene itself, like this is supposed to be a woman losing her virginity, and if you like look at the sex scene, like Ryan is going really hard. Like he is like just pounding it out, and I was like you want.
2: This is the guy s-
1: you want to maybe slow it down, sir. Like this is her first time. No wonder she looks like she's in pain. And that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs>
2: I mean this is an interesting thing and like I think that there is this weird kind of satirical subversion in the film that like I think that that may have been kind of intentional that we hear for the entire movie that he is this like Gothario and then we see him have sex and he's like jackhammering.
1: Kind of. I mean I feel like that's his character's version of making love. Of
2: making love. Yeah. That's that's him making love. What and- do you think he was doing to all the other ladies?
1: <laughs> so I'm just thinking like 30-something-year-old me is looking at this, and I'm just like, ow, <laughs> she...
2: <laughs> good good job, Brian. Uh,
3: so,
1: yeah. So, so I, I think
2: we got to jump into talking about the film.
1: Yeah. All right. Please.
2: I hate to be the one to break it to everyone. Everyone ages 25 to 45. Cruel Intentions is not considered a good movie.
1: Most why is it, why is it not a good movie? This
2: is, I don't, I don't, this is like a thing. Like most, most of us have cultural blind spots to like the movies that were considered very popular when we were young or at least in our early teens. And we make the assumption that popularity equals quality. I've run into this like a handful of times as a teacher, like explaining to my students why Twilight is not actually considered a good movie. But I fall victim to this myself with movies like Cruel Intentions and specifically Hook.
3: <laughs>
2: not to get too far into the weeds, yeah. but, you know, everyone hates Hook. Hook got I've like ne- a I've 20% on Hook, Rotten t- Oh, it's great. It's fa- Well, it's now
1: I'm definitely not going to watch it.
2: <laughs> I love it.
1: I've missed my window.
2: You probably have. I have. But Cruel Intentions is wild. And as... Rachel mentioned one of her draws to the film was one of the main draws, which is it includes basically all of young Hollywood at the time playing wildly against type, including Sarah Michelle Gellar, who dyed her blonde Buffy, the vampire slayer hair brunette to shed the image of the TV heroine, Ryan Phillippe, Joshua Jackson playing an out gay man Selma Blair, even Reese Witherspoon was kind of playing against type because she was coming off of the bitchy older sister role in Pleasantville the year before this. She was Tracy Flick in Election, which I think is a perfect movie. And she
1: she kind of actually subverts that type because she she starts the movie as a Tracy Flick adjacent character, Mm which is very clean cut, very innocent, but also smart. Like She's not a dummy. And then she em- ends up embracing love and sexuality uh, and is, learns a lot about herself in the process. And so, yeah. Which like- is
2: interesting because I think this ultimately became her type. Mm. But before this, I mean, like, this is three years removed from her truly bizarre role in freeway where she plays a 13 year old homeless hitchhiker who kills her would-be rapist played by Kiefer sutherland and she's like trailer trash um hmm. kills is in air quotes by the way i don't want to spoil freeway but it is one of the scariest movies ever
1: fun i've not seen it
2: it is horrifying Uh <laughs> <laughs> so what the hell even happened to create this bizarre turn of the millennium film I'm glad you asked <laughs> Cruel Intentions is actually a modern remake of a movie from 1988 called Dangerous Liaisons which was directed by Stephen Frears mm-hmm. and stars John Malkovich in the Ryan Phillippe role and Michelle Pfeiffer in the Reese Witherspoon
1: role love it Yes, love Michelle Pfeiffer
2: so, so good and that itself was an adaptation of a nineteen eighty-five play, Les Liaisons dangereuse. Uh which, your
1: accent was perfect, by Oh,
2: way. there's gonna be some French names that are in <laughs> trouble in a second. And that was itself an adaptation of the seventeen eighty two novel by Pierre Chaudel Rose. Nope.
1: Look look, no one would blame you for struggling through this this name.
2: Chaud- Choder, well, Choderlos Choterlos de Laclos. Just call him Pierre. Pierre, S- seventeen eighty two novel.
1: A lot of adaptations. A lot of teen adaptations in the late nineties and mid nineties.
2: A ton of teen adaptations in the mid nineties. But this, once again, this isn't Shakespeare. This is like a smut novel that <laughs> it would
1: be like-, like um Fanny. What was? The, do you remember? There's a book from like the seventeen hundreds that was like. Banned everywhere for years.
2: The Marquis de Sade book. Yes, the, yeah, the, the twenty days of Sodom.
1: It was like Fanny I need to <laughs> just fanny. <laughs> just Fanny. No, it was it was like, like a, a porn book, basically. Yeah. yeah that, this is
2: the equivalent of doing a teen remake of a porn book. And, and, and I can't really find a ton of info on like why they thought that this, like whose idea it was in the first place to do this nonsense.
1: So real quick, the, the BBC actually did do an adaptation of, um, Fanny, oh, I, which awful. I'm completely like the name is the full name of the book is fallen. I'm sorry, listeners. Sometimes on the fly, you just go blank, but the BBC did try to like make a real story out of the book that I just mentioned. And it's pretty funny to watch. So. I, re- I highly recommend if you have an empty Sunday afternoon, There's nothing to do.
2: Yeah, I think it's actually just called Fanny.
1: <laughs> Wait, hang on, hang on. Now I need to-
2: this is the the plays of the Marquis de Sade, Tancrede, Fanny,
1: Fanny Hill, Fanny oh, Hill, oh Fanny
2: Hill, Fanny
1: Hill, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. Published Delightful. in 1748, which it got, yeah it it got. It's an erotic novel, It's like banned everywhere, and then it it got a BBC adaptation at some point where they where they tried to make a, a sexy movie on the BBC of just awkward.
2: Delightful. So the novel, the stage play, the subsequent movies tell the tale of the sexual scheming of the aristocratic Marquise de Mertuil, Mertuil, and. The Vicant de Valmont, who become Catherine and Sebastian in the modern remake. They're narcissistic ex-lovers who get their kicks and their rocks off by manipulatively seducing paramours of unsuspecting, unsuspecting of their status as mere pawns. So they like have this game of conquests and Valmont is eventually redeemed by his eventual love for Madame de Turvel uh originally the subject of a bet with the Catherine character. All this is set against the decadence of the ancient regime, which is the decade leading up to the French Revolution. So think about this as, you know, Marie Antoinette's porn parade. <laughs> I will. Which is an also an interesting comparison that they draw to like nineties America, pre nine eleven America, but I digress.
3: That's true.
1: Oh, I, I never. That's a. That's actually an incredible comparison. Like we're living in the in the end days of the '90s decadence, where there's just nothing left to do
2: except for fuck.
1: Except for fuck. ever me and every every
2: you, ever you
1: and social climb.
2: So the plot of the '90s remake we're here to talk about today hinges on a bet that Catherine makes with her stepbrother Sebastian. They go to this Manhattan prep school. He's bored by dating debutantes. She thinks he won't be able to seduce the supposedly virginal Annette played by Reese Witherspoon, and she is the new headmaster's daughter.
1: Oh yeah, that that is an important detail that I missed. She's yes. she is extra taboo given. And and yeah. Sebastian
2: seems to have no problem with like fucking people's daughters. He like fucks the daughter of his therapist in the movie. Oh, played
1: um, by Tara Reid.
2: Played by Tara Reid, that's right. Um, and it's before the, fa- the start of the fall term. So this is like the summer before senior year. Yeah. If Catherine wins, she gets the 1956 Jaguar Roadster previously mentioned. And if Sebastian wins, he gets to fuck Catherine.
1: <laughs> yeah. So unlike the book, it sounds like these two have not in the movie have not actually consummated anything, but they just like teased the shit out of each other. Correct.
2: In, in the book, they are ex lovers. And it is kind of implied that there was some things between Sebastian and Catherine, but specifically the ultra taboo is if Sebastian wins, Catherine will let him quote put it anywhere.
1: I think that means in the butt. Why
2: is anywhere always just the butt?
1: <laughs> um, can I quick wait? That I told yes, you. About, whatever yeah. you're saying, the
2: answer is yes.
1: <laughs> no, I told you. I'm sorry, but I told you about what. Um. My mother said to me about the movie um, no unfaithful, right Oh
2: unfaithful yeah, no I think you may have, but I don't remember the, I
1: think I think I mentioned this in another podcast and I'm really sorry to anyone if I've already like said no, I love this, this but I'm so the, there's oh um uh, when I watched Unfaithful for the first time at like age 17, this is one of my favorite stories about my mother who was always really like sex positive but like not didn't overstep exactly. She just didn't want us to have, like, uh, she wanted us to be informed, but, but not like have any, like, she didn't want us to be pregnant. She was just very, like, pragmatic about all of it. Um, and I'm watching Unfaithful alone. (laughs) Um, there's that, there's that staircase scene where they're like doing it doggy style, but not, not in the butt as I later, realized because my mother comes downstairs and like at the exact wrong time at night and is like l- watching this with me for a minute and i was like oh my god i want to die and my mm-hmm. mother just goes you know they're not doing it in the butt right rachel delightful and i really was good just stuff. like and i just like must have let out a scream or like yes i know that and then i was also like i'm not sure i entirely knew that
2: well <laughs> Good education, but also a light touch. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So
2: the film was directed by a first-time director, Roger Cumble, and he went on to direct bizarre and subversive rom-coms, The Sweetest Thing. Oh
1: my God. One Mm -hmm. of my favorite movies of all time.
2: Starring my former boss, Thomas Jane.
1: He's your former boss? I was
2: his assistant for like six months, yeah.
1: I need to ask you about this. Some time when, like...
2: I never saw him wear shoes once. <laughs> not once.
1: I love The Sweetest Thing.
2: Sweetest Thing is, is a very cool, subversive, sex-positive rom-com. And is- also, like, the not-super-aged-well Just Friends, which I still think is kind of funny, but it's, like, pretty tactless.
1: I've seen only, like, parts of it, but yeah, I think, like, the fat suit may- kind of ruins fat ruined. suit's not great. Yeah, so I don't really need to... Someday I'll lay out my whole theory about how The Sweetest Thing, like, laid, it, like, walked so uh, Bridesmaids could run.
2: Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And and Selma Blair is also in Sweetest Thing, and and there's, like, a fun, like, oral sex gag that happens to her, yeah. which is very, very <laughs> silly. Speaking of Cosmopolitan, Cumble remembered that Ryan Phillippe told him on set, When you break down this movie, it's really about me wanting to have anal sex with my sister. It's a dirty movie about delightfully mean teens. Succinct. Succinct, right. Philippi. I like that he's doing his like actor-prepares work, and he's like, so what motivates me? Butt stuff? <laughs> this is from The Guardian. In many ways, the film was progressive. It included a lingering woman-on-woman kiss, which won the... MTV movie award for best kiss. And this is only two years after Ellen DeGeneres came out and her show was like canceled after a backlash. Sebastian's best friend, played by yet another nineties staple Joshua Jackson was gay without comment. And yes, it kind of had, there were some like slurs lo- lobbed at him, but he yeah. was like doing a very shitty thing. Not that he deserved the slurs, but th- this is, this is a weird, complex, very, very horny movie.
1: Yeah. Well what's interesting about the the uh kiss between Sarah Michelle Geller and Selma Blair is that I mean it no one's by, or at least they're not explicitly. So it's under in, the
2: pretext of the like, movie. I'll teach you how to kiss boys, right?
1: Yeah. So it does feel very male gazy.
2: Yes. This yeah. is for sure.
1: Yeah. Um that that said, um, it's it was sort of like, oh, like Two women kissing is fine if it's for it's for male 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 titillation, but I I also think
2: that Selma Blair plays it like because Selma Blair is like also Mm -hmm. a prude, right? And so she's like does not know which way is up at the end of being (laughs) manipulated by Catherine. Yeah. Cumble also wrote the script, which you mentioned, and he thought he was making a a, like a modest little indie. This is from BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed has like a great 20 years later of um, of cruel intentions that a lot of this is coming from. So Cumble told Cosmo in 2014 that producer Neil Moritz, who was fresh off of I Know What You Did Last Summer, saw the project, which was supposed to be like the super, super low budget indie and was like, Oh, I'm going to put the cast of I know what you did last summer in this movie. So it was a bit of a reunion between Sarah Michelle Geller and Ryan Philippi. And then Philippi begged Cumble to cast Reese Witherspoon to play Annette because they were dating at the time. And to do so, this is, this is Cumble via Buzzfeed. Cumble said, quote, we took Reese out to dinner to get her drunk
1: so that she would agree to star in the movie. Yes. Okay, but (laughs) get her drunk to star in a movie. I
2: know, yeah, I don't know. There's like a yikes next to that. I don't really get (laughs) it. I also think like there are agents involved. But Cumble said that Reese only agreed to join the project if she could help him rewrite the script to strengthen the role of Annette, so she wasn't such a doormat.
1: She calls Sebastian out on his bullshit.
2: Yeah, and she rightly so. This is you know Reese Witherspoon is like a power producer in Hollywood now, and this is part of her like the genesis of her being like a really smart filmmaker is she stands up to Sebastian but it takes it originally it just took a couple dates for her to like be head over heels and to for her to believe that she is truly changed and so reese was like no if if this is going to truly change him by the end of the movie like she needs to be someone that he's never seen before which is exactly correct
1: yeah that that scene in the pool when um
2: forever's lot that's the scene that's lodged into my brain
1: yeah the the, the butt scene <laughs> um, lot of, lot of um a lot of a lot of butts um butts it's a moment where sebastian thinks that that this is great like I, I'm playing a fun song and it's a pool and it's at night and he's like pulled out all the stops to seduce Annette and like gives her a gift and like they're swimming he's like naked and she just like pulls the plug immediately like like you think that she's friend like being friendly with him but and, and, and just for a second the viewer thinks oh okay it's happening and and then she just gets out immediately, and is like, "Yo, you think that all this is like going to be like successful in you know getting us to hook up? Um, yeah, you don't know me at all. Like, you've chosen the wrong girl. I'm, like, bye. Yeah, you you barely have my friendship.
2: Yeah, this is a pivotal scene in the movie, and I can't guarantee that this is one of like the Reese demanded scenes, but it feels like it, right? The, by the way, the other image from this movie that's burned into my brain is her doing that weird devil face.
1: Oh, that's an amazing face. In the a car. Woman. Yeah. <laughs> How does a human
2: being make that face? Cumble said that in cos- in that Cosmopolitan interview that uh, he was inspired to write Cruel Intentions after watching Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is like a deeply fucked up movie. Mm-hmm. Incredibly fucking fucked up. And this is Cumble's quote. I was like, wow fucked up high school. I've never seen this. It was so dark, which is an accurate reading of Welcome to the Dollhouse.
1: I know I've seen Welcome to the Dollhouse, but it was a really long time ago or I've only seen parts of it, but but that kind of made me think of Kids. Yeah. Just now. Kids yeah. Kids is
2: also of this era.
1: I was in a very dark place after watching Kids, but I'd love to know sometime like in your research, did you did you find any connection between cruel intentions and and Gossip Girl, because it feels like oh, there's a lot of connective tissue.
2: It does feel like there's a lot of connective tissue in the same way that, you know, if you listen to our Do Revenge episode, that this became a touchstone for, the, like, the mean rich teens movie. Yes. Um. So culturally, but I don't think that they specifically were like, we want to remake
1: Cruel Intentions.
2: Cruel Which, yes. by the way, the working title was Cruel Inventions. All right. Okay. That's okay. such a weird, like why be obsessed with that
1: cruel it all right well whoever whoever decided to change to to shift it ever so slightly good on you
2: good good job i'm I'm guessing that was like a a game of telephone
1: (laughs) yeah right well i heard cruel intentions Yeah. yeah well
2: fuck it let's go with it
1: yeah yeah
2: Uh, this is from BuzzFeed. As production designer John Gary Steele put it in the film's production notes, I didn't want it to feel like a young, bright, teen film because it's not. It's very tragic. Basically, everyone loses. Yeah. (laughs) Adam White, in a 2017 Telegraph piece about how the film seduced a generation, pointed out that in an era where even the best young adult actors were usually found playing roles like the bitchy prom queen or the handsome jock between their tenures on teen television, Cruel Intentions offered rising stars an opportunity to prove their range geller sarah michelle geller in particular had reason to sign on he wrote off the back of a double bill of pretty helpless murder victims and scream Two, and i know what you did last summer and finishing her second season as buffy summers and buffy the vampire slayer geller was given a chance to prove that she could be more than a vampire slayer or a doomed damsel in distress and so for me, as a person growing up, I remember that this was the selling point: was "Oh my God, Sarah Michelle Geller, Like you've never seen her before."
1: Ah, huh, yeah, interesting. I well, and by season two of Buffy, we've only it, Buffy her character's only really had one relationship, and it's it's like a, a cautionary tale about. Having sex, yeah. So you know, you fuck your boyfriend, and he'll 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 never call again. AKA lose his soul and try to kill you.
2: And the we'll hear some kind of fucked up things that there was like a rift that was kind of created between the Buffy camp and the Cruel Intentions camp. We'll talk about in just a minute. Yeah. But she dyed her hair dark to distinguish herself from Buffy, and she gave it her all as the totally irredeemable Catherine, who feels forced to act prim and proper and prude like in polite society while secretly carrying on her real life as a sex maniac and a coke fiend. Fun. (laughs) And this is the BuzzFeed writers. I agree with this opinion, but this is them for a second. There's something sort of refreshing about Catherine's complete lack of redeeming qualities. And unlike Sebastian, she has an actual reason to play a two-faced bitch. As she says in the best monologue in the movie, when Sebastian casts doubt on their latest scheme, quote, eat me, Sebastian. It's all right for guys to guys like you and court to fuck everyone. But when I do it, I get dumped for innocent little twits like Cecile played by Selma Blair. God forbid I exude confidence and enjoy sex. Do you think I relish the fact that I have to act like Mary Sunshine 24 seven so I can be considered a lady? I'm the Marcia fucking Brady of the Upper East Side and sometimes I want to kill myself.
1: That that uh monologue bears a resemblance to the Cool Girl monologue in, in uh, Gone, Gone Girl. girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I th-
2: I think I think that there is kind of a direct line between Sarah Michelle Gellar's Catherine and uh amazing Amy from Gone Girl.
1: Yeah, like if <laughs> Like Amazing Amy is uh, Catherine in the future. In the future, yeah.
2: (laughs) Having not gotten busted for coke possession. Yeah. Geller told Premier Magazine in 1999, we had long talks about Catherine's history. Roger always used to say, don't don't you think she was abused? And I, uh, Sarah, would say, no, I think she had the perfect upbringing. I think her mother adored her, and her father sent her amazing gifts, and she just wanted more.
1: Yeah, PSA, uh, women don't have to be abused. People don't have to be abused. To, in movies
2: or in real life.
1: Yeah, it, it, to, to have questionable motives. To, in, I mean, I, there are people in the world who um, have been given everything Pro- like that's what I think her character. If her character's history has any problem, it's just probably being way over indulged. Yeah, and um there is a lot. I think there is a lot of boredom there. Uh,
2: yeah, and and we forget that this whole thing is sparked because a boyfriend that she really cared about, it seems, dumped her for the prudish Selma Blair. Mm-hmm. So Geller also didn't think that the film should be dismissed as mere smut in the same premiere interview she addressed uh, an incident where Buffy the Vampire Slayer creator Joss Whedon jokingly demeaned the film at a press conference quote hmm. this is Sarah Michelle Gellar's mm-hmm. quote I did what I think is my best work to date in that movie and he brushed it off by calling it a porny and it's unbelievably hurtful to me he owes me flowers and that's on the record
1: well given what we know about Joss Whedon now right.
2: this exactly tracks- Totally tracks, and 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 the chip on his shoulder was uh, city sized at this point.
1: He was just probably butthurt that she did like something and, um, that and was, did good work. And did it? Him. Did it really well? And he like, yeah. just wasn't involved in it because he's yeah you know, a narcissist.
2: So it seems like this movie is kind of good despite itself because the Cumble script. Is Annette's a little bit of a doormat than she is in the final movie. He thinks that Catherine is like abused and he allowed Sarah Michelle Geller to kind of bring her own point of view to the character. It seems like he did the best thing a director could do, which is like listen, listen to his actors, listen to other people with good ideas. So is it possible that this movie is, is good? Despite what critics say, is it possible that the teens of America, specifically teen girls, picked up on the mischievous satire of Cruel Intentions better than film critics across the nation? Of course it is. I'm reminded of an article, I think written by Lauren Duca, about how the monoculture automatically judges and looks down on things that appear to be demographically marketed to teen girls. Mm -hmm. And I think Cruel Intentions is a victim of exactly that.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: maybe, just maybe that under the guise of a harmless teen comedy ish that the movie caught the gatekeepers sleeping and got away with stuff that's truly subversive and that raises eyebrows even today.
1: I could see that happening. I mean I, I, I could see gatekeepers quote, uh, letting not paying close attention to the production of this film. Because it was its cast teammate. and its premise, yeah. yeah. And that, that's an interesting take, and I, I could see that happening. And I was gonna say earlier that while when I revisit um cruel intentions as an adult and can like objectively separate myself from my teen self, I can see that it's not the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> um, but it has a lot of things that teen movies of the era didn't have like it had some pretty high stakes like literal life and death and yes it's dramatic but you've got conversations around race and social structure and hierarchy and money and sexual power so i think that the movie is thinking about things in in a pretty deep way that's my take That being said, like, is it a perfect movie? No, like, uh, I I just think it's slightly less on on the guilty pleasure scale. I think it is lower than, like, say, when I have to watch the movie Fear anytime it's on TV. Oh,
3: Fear (laughs) is a a rough one.
1: Speaking of Reese Witherspoon.
2: (laughs) Yes, indeed. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you're completely right. It deals with race, sex, class, sexuality. uh, all the all this stuff when when this is BuzzFeed again when Cruel Intentions was first released Sarah Michelle Geller said in an interview with E.T. we were coming out of a John Hughes era of movie making and moving into these like frothy romantic comedies and this movie isn't that right this is like what you were saying that there are real stakes there are life and death stakes and it does this thing it doesn't do this thing that is endlessly frustrating to me in movies where all the problems would be solved if the characters just talked to each other. This- uh,
1: yeah, that that's that's like my whole life been one of the most because I'm a very direct person and I always joke that like any movie, any rom-com or or situational comedy for me, if like I was the main character would be like over in five minutes.
2: It, I, I agree. Just like talk to each other. <laughs> don't lie to yeah. each other. The film appealed to SMG because quote to take material like dangerous liaisons and give it to teens it was sort of the first of its kind over 20 years after its release the cruel intention style mean teen movies have again become rather rare and replaced by a rebooted era of niceness and wholesome teen rom-coms like to all the boys i've loved before love simon kissing booth series which mm. is a popular one amongst the the kids and also these this like sick lit kind of stuff of like the fault in our stars and five feet apart and a walk to remember this oh jezebel God. dubbed this subgenre it's sad teen death
1: moves. <laughs> sick lit i actually prefer
2: <laughs> yes i yeah. don't, don't remember where i heard that but it it that's what it is right it's a sick yeah. sick flick Cruel Intentions, it just indulged in the nastiness and obsession and devotion and all these things that teens feel a little bit more than everyone else. And it paints a picture of morality so scrambled that the only real takeaway seems to be that people are bad, we're all going to die, but you might as well get in a few good one-liners before you do and look fucking fantastic along the way. (laughs) That's that's the—that's from BuzzFeed. I can't take credit for that.
1: But, I think. If, does anybody come out of uh, Cruel Intentions like for the better? Do you think? Just
2: Annette, right?
1: Despite having lost the guy that she, that she loses her virginity to, despite him well, now power. being dead, um, yes, I, I'd say Annette is. She kind of wins the movie, and she's on on the road because um, if you think about it, like, what would have happened if uh, Sebastian didn't die? Like. I picture some kind of grease situation where he like turns like, like, like Danny Zuko though. Like, and he's like, Oh, uh, like, yeah, my, so suddenly I'm like a good guy, but my friends don't know it. And I don't know. Like, it's a question I'm just going to throw out there, but like, what what would their future actually look like? So it's better that he be like manic pixie dream boy for her, I agree. and like, and like sets her off on a, a path to uh, hopefully emotional prosperity.
2: Especially because his his redemption is kind of untenable. Every character in that movie deserves what they get, e- even down to Selma Blair who seems like relatively... Like, they're all assholes. They all just deserve to to get their comeuppance. (laughs) Despite its critical yawn, Cruel Intentions made $75 million off of a $10 million budget, which was small even for the time. And it spawned a direct-to-video sequel and prequel, which failed to recapture the magic of the original. I've never seen the other... Movies? Have you? I have
1: not. I have not. I I, I hear <laughs> that they're just like
2: exceptionally bad.
1: Uh, well, when I'm not sure when the sequel came. Two thousand,
2: the year yeah. after that.
1: Yeah. So, um, in the year two thousand, if something was direct to video,
2: oh yeah, it, You'd it never. probably
1: you would never like like I think the American Pie franchise spawned like four direct-to-video releases like after the first like the first three movies. So, it's not quite like today where Probably like sixty five percent of what comes out yeah, is yeah. direct Nothing. to streaming, and it could be the like, it could be the most highbrow like critically acclaimed thing you've ever seen. And but at the time, yeah, it's, I think since since Cruel Intentions two came out direct to video in the year two thousand, I was just like, that's not no, going to be any good. So yeah, we'll so, skip so that. Cr- yeah.
2: Cruel Intentions two I think is actually the prequel, and it, ah. it follows Sebastian as he's transferring to Manchester Prep. And how, how he meets Catherine. It is also written and directed by Roger Cumble. Huh. And it stars very low on the, on the call sheet, Amy Adams.
1: Whoa. But none of
2: the original cast members are back.
1: Surprise, surprise.
2: It was originally planned as a TV series. Uh, uh, and then like a, like a prequel series. And it was picked up by Fox, but then canceled before it was broadcast. And it was picked up. In September of 99. So they like super duper rushed this into production. And eventually uh, the three episodes that they produced were edited together into a film called Cruel Intentions 2. <laughs> so wait, was, wait
1: the movie was an amalgamation of some, of some episodes of television?
2: Yeah, the movie was an amalgamation of three episodes of television that was a prequel to the original movie. But it was called, two. You back, know, so it's ba-
1: back to the future.
2: Yes, back <laughs> back from the future. Back and from the future. there is a Cruel Intentions three tagline: third times the charm." Which <laughs> <I'm> surprised?
1: I <laughs> didn't just call it like three way or something. Try to like oh, that's a, actually like, really good. Like like three. <laughs> <laughs> like and so cruel intentions window.
2: three seems to have nothing to do with the original cruel intentions. So the, the, the tagline from IMDb is two guys at a college prep school make wagers on seducing naive young girls and they're then meet their match when they agree to see which one can seduce the most popular and devious girl who has her own agenda to everything. But. As in Cruel Intentions 2, the prequel, we meet all the characters again, Sebastian, Catherine, etc. None of these characters are related to the original movie. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Written by Rhett Reese, the guy who writes the Deadpool movies.
1: Oh, actually, that could be good. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it seems like truly, truly bizarre. So... It seems like this was this lightning in a bottle thing. Cruel Intentions Prime was a massive hit. The direct-to-video sequels and prequels and TV shows were not not cutting it. And then everything changed for Cruel Intentions again, when in the early 20-teens, a couple of millennials had the insane idea to take this 90s erotic satire and bring it to the stage. Amazing. Co-created by Jordan Ross Schindler and Lindsay Rosen, Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical opened down the street from my old house at the now defunct Rockwell table and stage. And it featured songs from the film, as well as other 90s bangers, including Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer, Sex and Candy, No Scrubs, Torn, and Meredith Brooks's Bitch.
1: Oh, subject of a previous podcast.
2: It's true. And the show became an insane hit. After successful performances in both Los, the Los Feliz neighborhood of LA and then Hollywood, it went to New York and it, it made its off-Broadway debut at the Greenwich Village nightclub La Poisson Rouge in November of 2017. It was scheduled for a 10-week engagement, and then the show was extended three times through April of 2018. Original cast members Sarah Michelle Gellar, Selma Blair... Everybody, Roger Cumble came, everybody fucking came to this show, and it was a real cruel intentions renaissance.
1: That's amazing. Did you see it?
2: I did not, I didn't even see it. So, Rachel. Yes. This is where our episode comes to an end for this week.
1: It feels like we could dedicate a whole nother episode to cruel intentions and what happened as a result of the 90s musical.
2: What happened as a result of the 90s musical?
1: Well, the show became so popular that it spawned a sequel series on NBC starring Sarah Michelle Geller and written by original writer Roger Cumble and the writers of the 90s musical, Jordan Ross Schindler and Lindsay Rosen.
2: It just so happens that I know Jordan Ross Schindler, co-creator of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical.
1: Um, no way.
2: Way. We went to high school together.
1: Do you think he would come on the show next week and talk to us about the second life of Cruel Intentions.
2: I think he just might. But until then, you can find us on the internet everywhere at The Insync Pod.
1: Tell your friends about us however you can. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And tune in next week when we talk to Jordan Ross Schindler, co-creator of Cruel Intentions, the
0: 90s music. See you then.